Hello and welcome. This is 21. Episode 8.1 The Light of the Ancient World Imagine you are in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. This is your first voyage this far into the Mediterranean, and this is your only ship. The year is 66 BC. You are a small town fisherman who lives on the coast of Spain. The closest Roman city to you is Saguntum, about a day's journey down the coast. But you've recently been contracted by the governor of Saguntum to send shipments of tin and iron down to the biggest trade center in the known world, Alexandria. You had heard about this city from a few other sailors who happened to dock at your small town. They said it was the biggest city in the world, with people from everywhere. There were Romans, Greeks, Egyptians, Africans, Persians, and some strange-looking people from further to the east. There were massive libraries, temples, and markets. There were all kinds of goods, too. Strange products from all over the world. The tin and iron you're carrying, while it's common around you, is highly valued by some of the other peoples who frequent Alexandria. And if you and the governor of Saguntum can establish this trade route, it will mean big money for both of you, and more importantly, for Rome. You have been at sea for over a week. You've never been on the sea for this long. You're starting to feel a little seasick. The harsh, choppy waters of the Mediterranean are battering your small vessel. You don't know if it will hold together long enough for you to make it to Alexandria. You're hoping you don't have to stop again for food and water. No matter how tightly you tie your food down, or how securely you cover it, each time you go down to get some, you've noticed a little bit more has leaked out. If you keep having to stop, you won't make any money on this trip. But as the sun sets, you see a light come on in the distance. The light flickers every once in a while, which is a great sign. You breathe a sigh of relief. A lighthouse. The sailors told you of the lighthouse outside of Alexandria. You know that is what you're seeing. But as you continue towards the light, you notice something weird. There's no sign of land around you. Normally, when you can see the light from a lighthouse, you can see some land, even if it's off in the distance. But there's nothing around you. You go to bed and assume you'll see land in the morning when you wake up. But the next morning, the sea is as empty as it was the day before. A whole nother day passes, and when the light from the lighthouse comes back, you realize you haven't gotten that much closer. The light seems just as far away today as it did yesterday. You check your position with the stars, wondering if, for some reason, you moved very little, if at all, overnight. But you can tell that you moved at the pace you would expect to move. Confused, you go to bed, hoping that daylight will bring you some answers. But when daylight breaks again and there's still no sign of land, you begin to freak out a little bit. You can see the smoke off in the distance from where the fire was burning, but nothing else. With nothing else really to do, 
you keep sailing, knowing that eventually you'll see something. At about midday, you spot a ship coming towards you. You immediately flag the ship down. It's a large grain ship coming out of Alexandria and heading for Rome itself. The captain of the ship seems bothered that you've hailed him, but he orders the rowers to stop so he can hear you. You ask how much further it is to Alexandria, as this is your first trip to the ancient metropolis. The captain shrugs and says a day or two. Maybe more. Just keep heading in the direction you're going and you'll get there. He turns to his second in command to get his ship going again, but you ask up to him, then why can I see the lighthouse from here if Alexandria is still a few days off? The captain yells over his shoulder, you'll see when you get there. He yells the command and his rowers begin again and he continues on his journey to Rome. Well, you at least have an answer. You're still confused as to why you can see the light of the lighthouse, even though Alexandria is still a little ways away. But you know you're making progress. Over the next couple days, the light from the lighthouse gets bigger and bigger. You begin to pass more and more ships leaving Alexandria and heading for the corners of the Roman Empire. When you're about a day away from Alexandria, you see the lighthouse structure. You cannot believe what you're seeing. This has to be the biggest lighthouse in the world. It shines almost like the sun, and almost as if it's made of pearls. It towers over the ships in the harbor of Alexandria. As you pull in past the island where the lighthouse stands, you wonder what world you have just sailed into. I hope you've enjoyed that little journey back in time. And I am sure that feeling of awe, amazement, and wonder was felt by each and every person who passed into the harbor of Alexandria and passed the eighth wonder of the ancient world, the Great Lighthouse of Alexandria. Otherwise known as the Pharos, this massive lighthouse guided ships through the dangerous waters of the eastern Mediterranean to one of, if not the greatest city to have ever existed, Alexandria. But before we get too far ahead, as always, some context first. At the turn of the 5th century BC, the world was precariously balanced. Persia, who originated far to the east in modern-day Iran, had grown their empire to dominate the known world. Stretching from the mountains of India to the Dardanelles, the narrow strait which separates Asia and Europe, it was one of the largest empires in history up to that point. But their expansion had been stopped twice by those pesky Greeks. They were normally fighting amongst themselves, but when the Persians came knocking, they stopped quarreling long enough to push the Persians back. And they did it twice. These defeats caused a tense situation in Persia. Clearly, they were no longer climbing as an empire, but they were in their decline. But their empire was so big, it would have seemed to them at least, that no one could conquer the whole thing. While they might lose a few territories here and there, they were going to be fine. But boy, were they wrong. Thus, into the arena of history steps one of the greatest generals of all time, Alexander the Great. The son of Philip of Macedon, the king of northern Greece, Alexander dreamt of conquering all of Asia. 
not just stopping at the Persian borders, but even beyond into the unknown of the East. And in 334 BC, he made his move. He crossed over from Europe into Asia with 32,000 men and with such speed that the Persians were unable to keep him from making the crossing. Now, I will not get sidetracked here by going too deep into the campaign of Alexander. You could spend years on an entire podcast going through his conquest of the Persian Empire. But I do want to mention a few things about Alexander and his conquest before we get to the founding of Alexandria. First, what made Alexander such a great general was his ability to think outside the box, be aggressive where his advantages were, and embrace new weapons technology. Up until Alexander came along, ancient battles were fought in a similar fashion. Infantry, usually spearmen or swordsmen of some kind, would line up opposite each other and form the main lines. Chariots and cavalry were often used sparingly, as horses and chariots were hard to come by and thus incredibly valuable. Archers would stand behind the main infantry force and try to poke a hole in the enemy line. Then the infantry would try to push through the hole, with the chariots and cavalry sometimes used as a battering ram. But for the most part, the larger your army, the greater chances to win. But Alexander turned this on its head with his conquest of the Persian Empire. In almost every battle against the Persians, he had the fewer numbers. But Alexander used his combination to overcome these shortcomings in the number of troops. Perhaps the best example of this is the Battle of Gaugamela on October 1st, 331 BC. Gaugamela was located in modern-day Iraq. Alexander and his army, numbering about 47,000 troops, went up against the Persian army and their almost 86,000 troops. All of the advantages of this battle were in the hands of the Persians. They had chosen the battleground, and it was a spot to their liking. They had some exotic weaponry of their own, including a few war elephants from India. But it was almost as if Alexander was in the Persian war tent, listening to their plans, observing their tactics, and knowing the numbers. He knew exactly what they were going to do, and exactly what he had to do to counter it. Alexander also showed the effectiveness of putting the entire weight of your attack force at one spot in your opponent's line. This was an uncommon tactic in the ancient world, but it would prove to be so successful that more than 2,000 years later, two British generals cited the Battle of Gaugamela and Alexander's tactics as their inspiration for a battle plan in World War I. I feel as though it is pointless to say, but Alexander was resoundingly successful at the Battle of Gaugamela and would go on to conquer the entire Persian Empire in about 11 years. But an interesting move made by Alexander during his conquest of Persia was his detour he made down to Egypt. While Egypt was under the provisional control of the Persian Empire at the time, they were pretty much left to do their own thing. It's not like Alexander had to come in and physically conquer Egypt. But Alexander went down to Egypt and did two main things. The first was he crowned himself Pharaoh of Egypt. Now Darius, the Persian king, had done the same thing in the previous years, 
So it would seem that Alexander did this to show that Greek power was now the dominant force in the area. The second thing he did was found Alexandria. And while I am sure he had great visions for the city he was planning out, he had no idea how impactful this city would actually become. It would shape the world as we know it today. But we will cover more of the history of Alexandria next week. However, in our interest in the Pharos, there is something about Alexander's conquest that we need to stop and take a look at. As Alexander was conquering his way down the east coast of the Mediterranean, he defeated a Persian army near the city of Tyre. Tyre was the capital of the Phoenicians, who were the main traders of the ancient world. They didn't have much of an army or a physical empire, but they were the best shipbuilders and sailors of the ancient world. So the main powers pretty much left them alone in order to keep existing trade routes and economies intact. But with Alexander's conquest in 332 BC, that changed. Tyre and the Phoenicians, while not completely destroyed, were certainly not going to be able to continue as the maritime powers of the world, with Tyre at its center. This victory for Alexander, just like the Greek victories over the Persians more than 50 years prior, opened the door for something new to become of the ancient world. And Alexandria was positioned perfectly to step into that threshold. Alexandria was designed by Alexander's personal architect, Dinocrates, and was already in a position to succeed the moment it took formation. Dinocrates used the best techniques, designs, and materials in building Alexandria. It was founded a little west of the Nile Delta. I have a map showing the location of Alexandria on the website for reference. The location was significant. If Alexander had chosen to build the city on the delta itself, then all the silt, mud, and swampiness of the delta would mess with shipping lanes and the harbor. So instead, he chose a spot about 20 miles west of the delta. Still close enough that small ships sailing up the Nile could reach it safely, but it was also far enough away from the delta that the delta itself could not interfere with the harbor. There was already the remains of an Egyptian settlement in the area, but what Alexandria would become would be like nothing the world had ever seen. Within a century of its founding, it was regarded as one of the greatest cities of the ancient world, and it quickly became the trade center of the world. Due to its location, people from all over Europe, Africa, the Near East, and even the Far East would come to trade in its markets. The harbor of Alexandria was the best and one of the busiest in the world. It was also aided by an offshore island called Pharos. This island created a perfect inlet of sea just off the city that worked as a second harbor. But as Alexandria grew and grew, a problem began to become apparent. The waters off the coast of Alexandria were tough to navigate, and with the increase in sea traffic, there was a high risk for ships to either run into each other or run aground. To solve this problem, Ptolemy I, Alexander's general who was given control of Egypt after the untimely death of Alexander, authorized the construction of a lighthouse. But not just any lighthouse. 
the biggest one in the world before or since. Construction of the Great Lighthouse of Alexandria began in 290 BC, less than 50 years after it was founded. We know this exact date thanks to a document that was written in the 10th century called the Suda. It states, quote, Lighthouse, to the masculine designates the Lighthouse of Alexandria, that erected under Ptolemy, King of Egypt, Sostrate of Snidus, son of Dexiphanes, on Pharos, the island of Proteus, at the time when Pyrrhus, the heir Achilles, had already received power over Ypres. The designer of the lighthouse was thought to be Sostrate of Snidus, the same guy mentioned in the Suda. But there is some dispute about that. It's possible that he just financed the construction and wasn't actually the designer. We're not really sure. But the island itself was built on the island of Pharos, which was just off the coast of Alexandria. Soon, the lighthouse itself would become known by that name. The lighthouse was so impressive that the word Pharos actually became the root of the word lighthouse in many European languages, such as French, Spanish, and Italian. A typical lighthouse in the ancient world was a singular tall, thin cylinder, measuring a few stories tall. But for the great lighthouse of Alexandria, that would not do. This lighthouse was built more like a modern-day skyscraper than anything else. Now, fortunately for us today, we know a lot about the original design and structure of the great lighthouse. It was the second longest standing of the wonders of the ancient world, behind the Great Pyramids, obviously. But the Great Lighthouse stood long enough for some men to come along in the 12th and 14th centuries and write detailed descriptions about the lighthouse. They actually went inside and wrote down what they saw, and we still have some of these writings today. I will read their descriptions in whole next week when we cover the history and importance of the Lighthouse of Alexandria. But for here and now, we will just go over the highlights. The Pharos was built out of limestone, just like the Great Pyramids. And similarly to the Temple of the Sun of Teotihuacan, the Pharos was built in three stages, with each stage supporting the one above it. The first stage is not at ground level. It stood on a 20-foot-high stone platform. We assume that this was done to protect the base of the lighthouse from strong waves, or maybe it was done to provide more stability for the lighthouse. Whatever the reason, the first level stood about 73 meters or 240 feet tall, and about 30 meters or 100 foot squared at its base. It was built like a massive rectangle. The door to the lighthouse was not at ground level either, just like the Great Pyramids. It was elevated up the side of the lighthouse and was accessible via a 183 meter or 600 foot long ramp. Once inside this first level of the lighthouse, there was a wide, long spiral ramp that went up to the top. This was used by workers to bring materials to burn to the top of the lighthouse. This first level also had a number of windows built into its sides for light. There were also smaller rooms on this first level, which served as living quarters for the staff of the lighthouse, 
as well as storage rooms for food and water and whatever else they would have needed. At the top of this first level, there is a terrace with a high railing. On this railing, there were carvings and statues of tritons blowing horns. The Greeks believed that this helped prevent sea accidents from happening. On top of this first level stood the second level. The second level was an octagonal tower measuring about 34 meters or 115 feet high. Inside the second level, the ramp turned into a staircase. It was just too small and too narrow to have a ramp to be constructed in it. So animals could bring the wood almost all the way to the top. But from here at the second level, it had to be done by hand. The third level was the shortest and most likely just served as a buffer for the fire above it. It measured from anywhere from nine to 18 meters or 30 to 60 feet tall and also had a small staircase inside. This staircase came out to an open culpa where the fire was burned. Above this culpa, supported by pillars, was the top of the lighthouse. Up here, a large statue was placed. Now there is some dispute as to which statue actually stood there, whether it was Zeus, the chief Greek god, or Poseidon, the god of the sea, or if it was changed to a Roman god when the Romans took over the city. However, it's possible that the statue on top of the lighthouse changed as world powers changed. It's possible that Zeus was the original statue, only to be replaced by Neptune, the Roman god of the sea, when Rome took over, and perhaps even a statue of Christ after the Christianization of Rome in the 6th century AD. The completed pharos stood about 135 meters or 400 feet high. This is about the same height as a 40-odd story building today. No steel construction, no heavy cranes or computers, but the Egyptians and Greeks of Alexandria built something light years ahead of its time. But perhaps the most impressive part of the lighthouse was the mirror. Now granted, a fire burning at the top of a 40-story building is going to be easy to spot from a long way out. But the mirror at the top of the lighthouse gave it an extra bump. Perhaps made of polished bronze, it could project the fire's light as a beam a long way out, just like spotlights do today. It was said that ships sailing around the Mediterranean could see the light from the lighthouse up to a hundred miles away. Now whether or not this is true, I have no idea. But honestly, it makes sense. In the ancient world, particularly at sea, there was no light pollution to diminish the magnitude of the lighthouse's gaze. The Great Lighthouse of Alexandria is one of the most remarkable feats of construction in history. It is one of the few wonders of the ancient world that had a practical purpose for the majority of the public. Standing tall, shining its light deep into the heart of the Mediterranean, it stood as a beacon to the entire ancient world. And next week, we will look at the history of the lighthouse and of Alexandria. We will see just how important both became to forming the world as we know it today, and how Alexandria and its lighthouse would impact the world just as much, if not more than, its famous founder did. Oh,
to get to the end of the year.